Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And, well, they're going to come back and do it all again tomorrow. The House voting to adjourn until noon. Apparently, that's congressional time as opposed to 9 a.m. And they just barely got the votes to even do that tomorrow, giving Kevin McCarthy a few more hours to try to make a last-ditch deal that would give him the speakership. I, I think it's probably best... Um, sorry. Let people work through some more. I, th- I think uh, I don't think voting tonight does any okay. difference. I think voting in the future will. Do you have a? I mean, do you have a deal with those guys right now? No, not yet, but a lot of progress. Well, he says he's making well a lot of progress, and our reporting indicates that some members may actually be moving in McCarthy's direction, which may be a bit of a break in the clouds for him. But there's no doubt the horse trading will go on well into the night. But it's been a long and chaotic, and frankly embarrassing display so far. I mean, there were three votes yesterday, three more votes earlier today. No member-elect having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast, a speaker has not been elected. A speaker has not been elected. A speaker has not been elected. She just record that and keep pushing play throughout the day today. And maybe it might happen again tomorrow because they still have not managed to elect a speaker of the House. Not not yet anyway. And it's been 100 years since this has actually even happened, let alone on the first round or the second or now maybe going into a seventh or more round. And it's beginning to feel like it will be maybe 100 more before they finally get all of this done. Kevin McCarthy is really fighting for his political life and for the job, but he has been very, very clear that he's wanted all along. But it just shows you how hard, really, it's going to be for anyone to do this job, let alone Kevin McCarthy, who's fighting to actually get even these votes. Not a very attractive proposition for so many people. How hard it's going to be to get anything really done, with even this slim majority over the Democrats, and then a slim grasp on your own caucus. And let's remember, this actually matters to America. It's not just a matter of watching what it's like to see how the sausage is made and political muscle flexing. I mean, Congress does have real work to do, work that can't actually get done or even started until they elect a speaker and actually swear in the members. I want to bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill tonight. Manu, I mean... Kevin McCarthy still does not have the votes. It's been Groundhog's Day all over again for him, but hoping, I guess, again, tomorrow is a day to fight once again. Does he have the real progress he spoke of? There's some progress, but not the progress that he wants. Uh, there is some indication that some of those members of those 20 are moving in his direction. I've talked to several of them tonight. They, they're encouraged by the course of the talks. People like Congressman uh, Chip Roy of Texas, Michael Cloud, uh, also of Texas, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, all of whom who have been McCarthy opponents, now signaling that they believe that there have been some progress made. Now, I am told that there was an offer that was made by the McCarthy team tonight to those conservatives. Uh, opponents and detailing some process changes, some rules changes, uh, giving them some more sway over the legislative process, things that they have demanded for some time, as well as some more leverage over the speakership. They had been pushing for having one individual member to call for a vote to oust a sitting speaker. That is something that McCarthy has resisted. It sounds like they are moving closer in that 
direction. All of that means that perhaps he's making progress, but it does not mean, Laura, that he will get 218 votes to become elected speaker. There are other members who have different demands, they have different concerns, and the McCarthy team knows that full well. So they plan to negotiate with those other pockets of members to try to get them on board, because the math is incredibly difficult. With a 222-seat Republican majority, he can only afford to lose four Republican votes. He has almost certainly four rock-hard no votes. On the That means that he can't lose any additional votes beyond that. And at the moment, he does not have 218 votes, even if he gets acceptance to this, kind of this offer that they made tonight. So work is still ahead for mm. McCarthy to become elected speaker. This could drag out into tomorrow, maybe into the weekend, or even beyond. So there is a ways to go before McCarthy can get the speaker's gavel. And of course, that means that these members, all of them, are not actually sworn in. And although you have people right now who have committee assignments, who are incumbents, who are returning, there are many new members of Congress who don't have any real direction at this point in time as to what they're actually going to do. But I'm wondering, I'm surprised by the concessions that are being offered again, especially that threshold number for the motion to vacate. Because, Manu, originally they had wanted, the so-called rebels wanted one, assuming they wanted to negotiate in good faith. He had offered five. Are we saying that it's moving closer to some sort of splitting the baby, or it's one or nothing? I mean, it, it's a bit vague at the moment, but it sounds like the conservatives are going to get what they want. That That is the expectation at the moment, because that has been a red line for a number of these members, and the members have come out and said that they are happy at the direction this is moving, and it sounds like that's essentially what they're going to get. Remember McCarthy, where he started? He said he wanted half the Republican conference to call for that vote, that oust the sitting speaker. That has now, uh, then he came down to five members, having allowing mm-hmm. five members to call for that vote. Now it sounds like he's probably going to give them one member to call for that vote. And why is that significant? Remember what happened to John Boehner when that was the rule was just one member could call for the vote? He did not want to go through with the vote that could have toppled a sitting speaker. So he resigned. Mm-hmm. He stepped aside from the speakership. And that threat to over to oust the speaker has been sitting, has been wielded over the last several years. So much so it was Nancy Pelosi who raised the threshold to half of their members to call for such a vote. That's why, but this hardline group of conservatives want to lower that threshold to empower themselves over the speakership. But that has caused just a lot of concern within the ranks that perhaps this will just lead to such an unwieldy situation where at any moment the sitting speaker could be ousted. Manu Raju, thank you so much. Here with me in the studio tonight, CNN political commentator David Urban, also CNN anchor and correspondent Adi Cornish, and Margaret Talib, senior contributor at Axios. Look, let's be realistic. The more you lower the threshold the closer you bring that sort of Damocles right above the the head of the speaker. He's well aware of that. And if you only have four votes to lose now, and it might only take one person later to oust you, that means he will constantly be living in a state of fear, even if he were there, right? I mean, this is a no-brainer as to why he doesn't want this, right? And yet he does want the job. And so I think what we're seeing today is sort of a little bit of a preview of what is to come if he ends up pulling it off. So much of the last five, six years, the political debate in the U.S. has been about whether um, political minorities wield too much power, right? Whether uh, the way the Senate is apportioned, the Electoral College, the filibuster, uh, gerrymandering, whether all of that is fair, the idea that you could lose the popular vote and still be the president. But what is happening here, what is playing out here is the opposite. It is the core minority 
of the Republican Party saying we want more power. Mm -hmm. We want the ability to wield more power and to to take five people and give them the equivalency of like a hundred people. And that's really what's playing out here. Well, take a step back, though, Adi, on this point, though, because it really is the Republican Party, right? And you've got the so-called rebels within and the idea of thinking about the, the minority rule playing out. You really are seeing this in real time. The idea of we even had Congressman, former Congressman Adam Kinzinger on the air earlier today talking about how he was glad the American people were seeing how his party had been hijacked by a select few. Is that the real optics here? Uh, I mean, the American people have TVs and have been voting for a couple of years. I think they have whatever their own opinion is about the Republican Party and the state of it solidified already. What's significant here is if you put yourself in a position where you could have at any given time the leadership undercut. Remember this person who's like the third in line for the presidency, like after the vice president. Um, you can have a carousel, right, of people coming in and out. But what's significant about that is you've got national security briefings that have to be happening, right, which aren't happening right now. You have people who need to be chairs of committees, who need to get legislation going, um, who need to pay the people on the Hill, like all of these really basic things. Um, and in fact, Adi, I want to play well, for a second here a clip because Congressman Gallagher, I believe, was talking about that very point, about right. how he didn't even have security clearance at this point. Listen to this. Right now, uh, Don Bacon and I were supposed to be meeting with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the skiff here to talk about matters in the Indo-Pacific. But I'm informed by House Security that technically I don't have a clearance. I, I'm a member of the Intel Committee. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. And I can't meet in the skiff to conduct essential business. My point is we have work to do that we can't do right now. Ridiculous. Yeah, he's not even a congressman technically right now, right? Like, this is a big problem. And these are people who are guiding legislatively uh, what is going on for the country. I don't think it's an accident that so many people are leaning more into state legislators, which are basically saying, look, we can get things done at the state level. I don't think it's an accident that Ron DeSantis was essentially crowing at his second term speech, which sounded a lot like a stump speech, and nodding to the dysfunction in Washington, someone who used to be in the Freedom Caucus when he was a, a lawmaker, because there is this sense that, like, this is just a clown car. And these images of them milling around, arguing publicly, the pizza boxes, it's not giving the vibe that they want, which is democracy is messy. It's just they look messy. I mean, David, a clown car might have more votes ultimately than I did not when it mattered. I'm Everybody just saying, you, did, I, well, you know, it was a good one. I went I'm right sorry. into it. I'm, I'm leaning into it. It's 10 o'clock at night. We're doing metaphors. In fact, I think we all to have some. We're doing clown cars tonight. So tell me about the clown car that so, was this moment. Yeah, so it's not, it's definitely a bad look for the Republican Party, right? To say, put us in charge and we're going to do great things in Washington, right? That's the, the message was, we're going to do much better. We've got all these important things to take care of. And, uh, you know, look, hopefully they'll, they'll start doing something once we get to, get to the speaker. But, you know, back to your point about whether it's one or five for the call of the chair, I, I think that's, that's almost like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's irrelevant it's one or five, right? Because if you got one, if you got five, you can get one. If you got one, you can get five, right? So well, how I about think, the number four? Does it even have I enough think it doesn't to matter. I, I think it doesn't matter. It's probably why Nancy Pelosi made it 50. Exactly, because, you know, <laughs> subject to the college chair doesn't mean you get recalled. It just means there's a vote to recall you, right? So it doesn't mean 
You, you could you could have it every day. Someone could come up and do it every day. Just it's a waste of time. But to be clear, what I mean point. when I mentioned the four, I'm talking yeah. about forget even the threshold. Oh, the voting for right. you to actually become the speaker of right. the house to even worry about that sort of Damocles. If we go till tomorrow, does Kevin McCarthy have it? Yeah, so Kevin, my, my prediction is Kevin McCarthy will be the speaker. Mm. Um, uh, really? I, don't, I, I think I don't think there's a plan B. I don't think anybody. If, listen, you've asked people, you've seen it on the Hill. There's no plan B. Number one, don't, don't forget. Once Kevin McCarthy becomes a speaker, a few weeks from now, there can be a very painful vote in the House to raise the debt ceiling, right? Which lots of people aren't going to like, right? Lots of these folks who are squawking right now aren't going to want that to happen. They're going to, they'll be, I promise you, as soon as that vote takes place, there'll be a motion to recruit yes, to, to, to call, to, you know, get Kevin knocked out. So you don't see anybody else saying, well, put me in, coach, because they'll get knocked out right then. So it's a tough job, right? It's a very tough job. My prediction is they're doing work. They're doing real work right now. Like Manu said, um, Chip Roy, Scott Perry, others are negotiating in good faith. And why this other guy from Cal- from Florida? You're a, you know this. So, so By- Byron Donalds, he's, he, look, he's a smart guy. He's taking advantage of an opportunity. I don't think Byron Donalds will ever be speaker. And well, not this, not this crowd. Byron Donalds may be speaker at some point in the future. I just don't think in this Congress he's going to be speaker. Yeah, and to quote him today, uh, he never really came here to be Speaker of yeah, the House. Well, they nominated me. Of course I voted for myself. <laughs> that is pretty cool. It's not a serious, <laughs> right? Yeah, but so so, so Kevin, Kevin, will, Kevin will get there. I think we'll get there. Um, I, I, this is, look, people have said this, you know, like you, 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 sausage making is ugly. This is, you know, people in America aren't used to seeing real legislative struggles. And that's to, to, to these point of a lot of these folks in this 20 group of 20, they're not able to offer amendments on the floor of the House, right? They're, they're not able to read bills. There's not really legislation taking place. Well, to and be they fair, want to see it taking place. To be right? fair, the American public has been angry about not seeing legislating more broadly. Well, that, that, I forget, forget the sausage yeah. being made and, and all the things. We're coming back. Don't worry. And the clock is ticking, everyone. The House is actually due back in a matter of hours. And, well, we've got an optimist here on the panel about Kevin McCarthy being able to get those numbers. But he is running out of time to get the deal that would actually give him that speaker's gavel. But even if he does get that job, the question is, will he have any real power or really any respect after getting it? Now, as you saw tonight, the House adjourned again without any clear answer on who will be the new House Speaker. Now, tonight, there were actually four GOP House members. You see them on the screen right there. The one to the far right, I believe, is a congressman-elect, a new one, and members who are voting with Democrats to keep the House in session, to vote against adjourning and going home and coming back tomorrow at noon. So now the question on everyone's mind as this standoff in the House GOP will drag now into a third day is who is going to blink first? Back with me, David Urban, Adi Cornish, and Margaret Talib. On that point, I mean, the idea of not adjourning tonight for these four members in particular, right? You see some of them. You have Biggs, Boebert, Gates, and then Crane. Yep. At least we know Biggs, Boebert, and Gates were already sort of never Kevins. Yes. And the thought of some were, look, he doesn't want to adjourn because there might be a reason to have an alternative be able to be voted on. And he would lose again in a now seventh humiliating defeat, perhaps. How do you see the fact that this was not an adjournment tonight? It, was, it wasn't adjourning tonight. Uh, 
I think the, the ones who didn't want to adjourn want to just have a succession of humiliating votes that uh, weaken him and, and end this or at least weaken him. Uh, but I think there is enough of a desire in the rest of the Republican caucus to turn the cameras off for a minute and take it behind closed doors and try to do the horse trading, the concessions, and try to figure out whether it's going to be McCarthy or whether it can't be. And in that case, what's the plan B? Is the plan B Scalise or whatever? You can't do that on the floor of the House with a succession of votes. Is just, there? I mean, but is there a? Are you getting a sense no, there is a plan B, no, or is Kevin, it just it's Kevin, McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy? My prediction is it's going to be Kevin McCarthy. They're going to get some concessions, and it's going to be Kevin. I mean, I don't think you've you've not heard from anybody other than Chip Roy that I've seen on any network anywhere that's laid out. Here are the things we'd like to see happen, or here's an, here's an alternative course. Well, but right? part of that has been that, let's say that, um, let's say that it couldn't be McCarthy. Let's say that no deal could coalesce, and, and it had to go to kind of the next plan. Scalise is the person who has always made sense. Scalise is never going to go out and campaign for himself. He is a McCarthy ally. He has already said he's standing by him. And you don't think the have, power is enticing? I mean, it, it, the power well, being enticing to McCarthy is already prevalent. No. He can't get those five holdouts if he puts himself out as a candidate. The only way it could be him is if everyone well, came to him and well, said by the it way, has to be the Kevin, Kevin McCarthy might say, no, you're not, Steve Scalise. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy has yeah. still some sway, right? I, mean, so, I think there's some important context I want to throw out here, which is that McCarthy has borne witness to Gingrich going down, Boehner going down, yeah. Paul Ryan going down. He, has, he was there for the years when the Tea Party caucus basically brought things to a, 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 a standstill, right, over the debt ceiling, et cetera. He has seen every one of these movies before. And I think one of the things he's learned, evidently, I'm just sort of seeing this over the last couple of days, is that you got to wait it out, yep. that they will go all the way to the mat. And he's really the first of the establishment types to go, well, what if I wait too, right? The one who says, maybe embarrassment shouldn't be the thing that takes me out of this. Maybe uh, cable news chatter isn't the thing that should take me out of this. If you can withstand the storm, can you actually outweigh these people? But it is totally yeah. about learning these lessons of the last few years. Now, can you govern the whole way That's like a that? Question. That is really the that unknown, seems I think, hard so. if you have to horse trade all of the power yeah. of the office away to get yeah. it. And by the way, that was the point that Congressman Gallagher made when he nominated McCarthy earlier today. He was talking about cable news. He was talking about the Twitter fest, talking about he called it the schadenfreude and the idea of all of everyone sort of rejoicing and how humiliating this looks. When in reality, that's not what's really going on. Maybe it was a shifting of the narrative. I don't know if it's a successful one or not. But I mean, are I'm not we saying that's not what's going on. I'm saying <laughs> that is not something that is enough to deter Kevin McCarthy from pushing forward. Right. Boehner got out is... before he would get exactly, humiliated. Exactly, because he was McCarthy's like, I don't like, want to be humiliated. i got to get out of here. McCarthy's already been McCarthy's humiliated. like, oh, no, what, how far it. can we he's go? Uh, and so he's going to just stick it out because he knows that waiting it out actually could work because there's not as many people as you think holding out. So, so why did why did the former president and now candidate yet again, Donald Trump, why did he voice his support again today in the way that he did? Why did he do that? You mean because on Truth Social? On Truth Social. I mean, he already endorsed him right before this. We knew this. There was a talk about whether he would, you know, double down and make it very vocal again. Then there was a Truth Social. Yeah. But it hasn't seemed to move the numbers. And you seem to be very convinced that it's McCarthy or bust. But 
Trump didn't seem to info, to, uh, to um, change the minds or sway the minds, at least of these four. According House to members. Lauren Boebert, he made it worse. Right. She got up on the floor, said he's been calling everyone, right. and by the way, maybe you should call Kevin McCarthy. I mean, it really does signify very snarky. Very snarky. snarky. That surprised you though? Uh, well, oh, very she, much so. Yeah. Her of all people. She bit the hand. She said it's my favorite president, but it was very clear saying to the cameras, right? His favorite. Uh, sort of medium, um, that's not going to work with us. And I think that also is a reflection of the performance of the midterms, right? The Trump name didn't help people the way they wanted or could, or they wouldn't even be in this position. Just and ask Lauren Boebert. Just <laughs> ask Lauren Boebert, who totally struggled in her own race. She's on a two-year so, YOLO glide yeah, path. Yeah, Trump but, can't yes. save Kevin McCarthy. Is he a two-year YOLO glide path? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a tattoo. That's amazing. Okay. Well, I mean, on that point, but take a step back for a second, because, you know, what does that really mean? Because Trump, of course, is running to be the president of the United States again, did not have the sway to have the red wave materialize. Kevin McCarthy, who has famously known as the one who went to kiss the ring following January 6th to secure the support, has been derided continuously for having done so. Um, and now even his endorsement doesn't seem to pull any, put any sway, even for like a Matt Gates or a Boebert. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it does appear that the Republican Party is rudderless, right, leaderless at this point. There isn't uh, a well, single, Mitch McConnell uh, had a good day. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. He's, <laughs> Don't you want to know what Mitch McConnell is thinking? I'm telling you, well, is he thinking, he he was thinking really, smile for Kevin? the cameras? Because he, he was being excited about the infrastructure package. Yeah, well, McConnell's, in McConnell's worried about, I mean, the, to Mitch McConnell's credit, he is singularly focused on the Senate, right? Yeah. Always has been, always will be. And uh, and, and that's the beauty or the, you know, the, the ugliness of Mitch McConnell. I mean, he's a very effective legislator. He runs the Senate very well. But and now the longest. Now the longest serving more than Mike Mansfield, right? So, you know, kudos to. Um, uh, to Leader McConnell, but you know there there isn't a singular person in the party, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's the you know RNC. There's nobody that can can exercise enough power over any one of these districts yeah. to, to make to make a difference. And, and and I think it's because you know look, it's the legislature. Every year, every te- every decade, we draw these districts safer and safer. So the only way Lauren, you know, the only way uh, Byron Donalds loses is from the right, right, right? The only way Matt Gates loses is from the right. And this is why one of their demands is extremely specific. They don't want the House leadership to jump in races races, where there are open seats, safe, open Republican Uh, seats. They say, don't jump in there because they know they may have the advantage in a scenario that is primary voter focused. And they just saw a bunch of races and a bunch of losses. And they've seen their whole party say, I don't know about this. I don't know about these uh, MAGA people. Maybe we should be doing something else. And so there are actual greater um, sort of concerns that are going on here that are playing out that we can't tell because we're kind of busy being like, McCarthy stepped on a rake. But like, there's this, you know, it's about the future of the party. Who will run in the next batch of races? And you saw like this evening, right, the Congressional Leadership Fund Club for Growth had an announcement. We're not going to we're not going to attack each other. We're going to play nice in primaries to Audi's point about, you know, that that was a big deal. McCarthy said, I won't do that in the future. The club, now that may be a fig leaf to give people, you know, an option to say, that, oh, that was, an, that was the reason I was holding out. Right. So now I'll be for Kevin. But so there, the is, money there is, or it may not be a fig leaf. It may really yeah. fuel no, an entire it, new generation of Tea Party candidates. Right, but, but, it, but, it, but it does races. provide a, a reason for people to say, okay, now I can be for Kevin. Or right? I can be not present or whatever right. it is. Exactly. But to your question, I mean, I think Donald Trump uh, 
yes, is, is weakened. But also, this is a weird one because House leadership races are not normally the terrain of sitting presidents or ex-presidents. They are the terrain of the members of the House. And so it's a weird place for him to insert himself. Uh, also, like, he, yes, he supported Kevin McCarthy, but not in the way, if he was really, like, if he were still president and he were running and gunning for this, he would have been threatening people, cajoling right. them, yelling at Support them. Support for McCarthy would actually look like attacking mm. the well, people but he, who but were he challenging did, listen, yeah. he, did, he did put his name out there. True stuff. I mean, he is yes, on the record. He did not come up with cute nicknames for the well, people who were rebelling. Well, he didn't do the things sh- that, that he knows are most effective. The ground is shifting for him, but yeah. I think it's this has been a, a weird thing. Um, it is. It, that is the way we're ending. It has been a weird thing, America. That we can all agree it has been a weird thing. Kevin's still it's also be been okay. Well, this is why I guess Kevin McCarthy is continuing to go. This Luckily panel gives him some <laughs> optimism. Everyone has been a chaotic couple of days on Capitol Hill, but really the question is more broadly: What does this even mean? Forget about the health of the GOP or the Democrats. How about the health of the democracy? We're going to talk about that with someone who knows Kevin McCarthy very well, Frank Luntz is up next. I want to go right now to Manoraji with news on Capitol Hill about some key concessions from Kevin McCarthy in his push to get those 218 votes. Manu, what's new? Yeah, a lot of these conservative members have been asking for a number of changes to the House rules and other matters in order to give them more power, more sway. These are members of the mostly the far-right House Freedom Caucus. They believe they've been shut out by the speakership uh, for some time in their own leadership. And now they are getting some concessions that they have demanded. What There are three major issues that uh, we have learned. My sources are telling both me and my colleague Melanie Zanona that uh, McCarthy has agreed to propose to change what's known as the motion to vacate. That is the how a vote is called on the floor of the House to essentially oust a sitting speaker. McCarthy had come down from the current conference rules, which allow for half of the Republican conference, uh, more than 100 members, to call for such a vote. He had agreed to come down to five members. That wasn't good enough for a lot of the members. They wanted to come down to a one-member threshold, meaning any one member can call for such a vote to oust a sitting speaker. McCarthy, we are told, has agreed to that concession. He would would come down to the one-member concession. Also, they wanted members who would be take part on the House Rules Committee. That is a very powerful committee here in the House. That would essentially dictate the terms of a bill and the amendments on the House floor. It is usually controlled by the leadership. McCarthy has agreed to give some members of the House Freedom Caucus seats on that very powerful committee, which would have huge implications for the bills that come to the floor and the amendments that are being offered to it. Now, in a final concession that we have learned about, he's promising to give them votes on some key policy matters that they had proposed. Among those issues is pro- imposing term limits on members of Congress. That had been pushed by a lot of members, had been resisted by, by people who have been serving in Congress for some time, which is a lot of the more veteran members, the more senior members of Congress. There will be a vote on the House floor on that issue. That doesn't mean it's going to become law, but at least McCarthy, if he becomes Speaker, has, has said that he would promise to give them a vote. And then also on a border security plan, that they had been pushing. So those were among the issues that are on the table that were provided in an offer today to conservative members, several of whom I've spoken to have said that they are heartened by this and they could potentially embrace this and maybe even could support Kevin McCarthy. Now, Laura, that doesn't mean that if this is all agreed to, he will get 218 votes tomorrow to become a speaker. He's still 
almost certainly will not, because there are other members who have different demands and different concerns that they still have to resolve. But at least it appears that he's moving in that direction to give these members what they want, even though some other members, a lot of other members, particularly with the more moderate members, are concerned about giving too many concessions, particularly over the speakership, to, as a leverage over the speakership, could essentially cause chaos in the ranks and instability in the House. Nevertheless, McCarthy is moving in that direction because he needs the votes. Manaraju, wow, sounds like the keys to the castle. I'm not sure what's left at that point. Joining me now, pollster Frank Luntz, a friend of McCarthy. Frank, I'm glad that you're here. First of all, you've known him for, what, 29 years? And just thinking about the concessions that now have been agreed to, or at least tentatively agreed to in part, to get that 218 votes, what does the willingness to make these deals still tell you about how badly McCarthy wants this position. I mean, it could be just a fleeting post if you have that one person threshold and everything else. Well, I have empathy for the members who feel like their voice hasn't been heard. I've been involved in this whole thing for about 30, 35 years. And I understand the frustration on the left and on the right where they feel like they can't make the difference they want to make, where they can't have the impact that they're trying to do. I get that. But Thomas Paine wrote so eloquently in 1776, what we obtain so cheaply, we esteem too lightly. Mm. I think we've taken our whole democracy for granted. I think we've assumed that because it has existed for 250 years, it'll just simply continue to exist. And we know the threats, we know that it has failed in other countries, and I'm afraid it's going to fail here. Second, tonight before I did this interview, I was, uh, this woman comes up to me with a bright light shining again in my face, asking me damning questions as I'm trying to hold a conversation about a memorial service I'm going to host in my house in California. And I said to her, please, someone just died. And she doesn't care. She's yelling at me about politics. We've lost our sense of decency, our sense of civility, our sense of respect to human beings. And third, and this is my message to not just the Republicans in the House, but to all members of Congress, we used to celebrate teamwork. Whether it's in sports or in music, working together side by side to get the job done. Now we seem to celebrate celebrate individuality where it's my right to do what I want and I don't give a damn what you want. I look at these three threats to democracy and to our way of life as Americans, and they all concern me. And they're all happening right now in this speakership battle. Well, Frank, first, I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of life and the memorial service that you will be hosting. I'm sorry that that experience happened, and obviously for the loss of the person that obviously meant something to you. Um, I am thinking about how long you have known McCarthy, and just thinking about you led with the word empathy. And for many people, the term and the word you know, humiliation is rolling off the tongue as easily as any other. The idea of how mortifying this must be, the sustained humiliation of all this, the ego bruise. I'm wondering, you've known him for a long time. How do you think all of this is impacting him, especially given there's been some pretty targeted statements against him. There's been more than snark. There has been um, really deriding him and denigration. And I wonder how you think he is receiving all of this. Well, he is, I refer to him as a happy warrior. 
in that he listens, he learns, he he engages, he negotiates. I don't think this is as embarrassing as you might accept. I think this is where he's at his best. He has the ability to bring people together in a way that most politicians either can't or don't want to. And I think that that is so essential right now in this environment of resentment, in this environment of polarization and how toxic it is. I, I see Kevin as the perfect example of someone who can get the job done because everyone has a voice. Everyone is a participant. I've never heard him, never in 29 years, complain about his situation or his lot in life. He's the, he's the child of a fireman. This is why we got connected in the first place. His father and my father died within about a year of each other. Kevin has always done the one thing that you never hear about politicians in Washington, ever. He's been humble. You always hear about pride. I'm proud that I brought this to my constituents. I'm proud that I achieved this. You don't hear that from Kevin McCarthy. You, you hear humility, and it's the way that he grew up, and it's the kind of person he is. So if there's anyone who can survive this, I couldn't, but Kevin can. Well, Frank, that does paint a very different portrait about why he's able to endure what many perceive as the sustained humiliation. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. It's an honor. (sighs) NFL player Damar Hamlin, he is showing signs of improvement tonight after suffering cardiac arrest during Monday night's football game. But he is still in critical condition. And now President Biden is weighing in on the dangers within the league. I'll tell you about that next. There is some encouraging news tonight about Buffalo Bill safety, DeMar Hamlin. The team says that he is showing some signs of improvement over the past day, but he does remain in critical condition in the intensive care unit. Remember, he suffered cardiac arrest and collapsed on Monday night During the game with the Bengals, he was resuscitated on the field before being rushed to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Now, his family is clarifying today that Hamlin was resuscitated only that one time on the field. And President Biden is saying today that he spoke at length with DeMar's parents. Joining me now is CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, good to see you and good to know that there is some improvement, Mm -hmm. although he does remain in critical condition. Um, There's been some back and forth as to what that condition is. But I wonder what you make of the way this is being handled by the league and the way that the improvement has been relayed. Well, I think people need to be optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. So I have no criticism about uh, the way information such as it is has been relayed to the public. Uh, This is still an ongoing situation. And there was some hesitation about whether they would continue the game or not. But that was as they were gathering information. And a lot of that decision making was certainly influenced by the coaches and players in Cincinnati. But back in New York, Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent and the people at the Players Association are being briefed. So I have no criticism with the fact that it took a while to have a final decision that they would not play the game. And it seems to me obvious now, since this coming weekend is the final weekend of the regular season, they might have had a chance to make up this game earlier in the season when teams have bye weeks. But they are not going to replay this game under any circumstances. The Bengals and Bills will play 16 games. The other teams will play 17. And they'll seed the playoffs based 
focused on winning percentage rather than total victories. That's much less important, but it is still, still noteworthy. You know, Bob, one of the things we talked about on Monday night as this was all unfolding was there were many mm-hmm. who were instantly critical of football as a sport, the umbrella of danger that we often think about when we're talking mm-hmm. about football in relation to concussion, CTE, and beyond, paralysis in some instances. Now, this situation that we're seeing, it, we haven't heard from the medical team, but the opining that people have given is about the idea of it's usually more seen in these projectile sports. But I want to you know, listen in yes. to what the president of the United States, who's now weighing in on what happened after talking to mm-hmm. the parents, listen to what the president has had to say about that umbrella of danger you've spoken about. The idea that you're going to have, you got guys that are 6'8", 340 pounds, running a 40. I mean, you know, uh, you, you hit somebody with that kind of force. Now, that's not what happened here. But I, I just think it's, uh, I don't know how you avoid it. I, I think working like hell on the helmets and the concussion protocols, that all makes a lot of sense. But it's, uh, you know, it is, it is dangerous. You've got to just acknowledge it. Now, Bob, you did not see this initially as an indictment overall mm-hmm. of the sport, but no. you have said often it's a sport that can only be made safer, not safe. Given the president's words, do you still yes. agree? Yes, and if, you, if you're talking about brain trauma, if you're talking about spinal cord injuries, or if you're just talking about the large number of players who have aches and pains and hip replacements and knee replacements and difficulty getting out of bed in the morning just because of the attrition of playing this sport, yeah, you can put all of that on football. But when you talk about this one particular instance, it's very rare overall when you think of the millions and millions of tackles in football as it's played throughout the country over the course of the year and millions and millions of batted balls and pucks and balls in play in lacrosse and pucks in hockey this is exceedingly rare but statistically the medical information and the experts have told us that to the extent that it happens it's more likely to happen in projectile sports so-called projectile sports like baseball hockey and lacrosse But that doesn't take football off the hook for the other circumstances we mentioned. And watching this brings those circumstances to mind. And over the last 48 hours, the most poignant thing I've heard, of course, none of us can read and and hear everything when so many people are focusing on this, but I've seen and read a lot. And the most poignant thing I heard came on Monday night. John Brennan was talking with Ephraim Salam, who played 13 years in the National Football League as an offensive lineman. And he said this, I played football so that my boys would not have to play football. Many players come from relatively disadvantaged backgrounds. There's a lot of money. Sometimes it comes over only a short career, but there's still a lot of money involved. And there's the thrill of competition and the camaraderie of it and the drama of it and the shared experience. No one is slighting that. But there is often a price to pay. And Ephraim Salam, a very bright man who obviously loved football in a certain sense, will not let his sons play football. That's just a fact. The price of the attempt at intergenerational wealth, a much broader and poignant topic indeed. Bob Costas, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Well, there has been a major decision from the FDA 
allowing pharmacies to dispense abortion pills to people who have a prescription, what it means for tens of millions of women across the country, and how long until you know what's coming. This is challenged in court. We'll talk about it next. A major move by the FDA with abortion rights being restricted across the entire country. The agency now allowing certified pharmacies to dispense abortion pills to patients who have a prescription. And some major pharmacies are also planning to dispense the pills, but of course not in every state. The medication mifepristone um, can be used along with another medication, misoprostol, to end a pregnancy. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the FDA allowed the pills to be sent through the mail and said that it would no longer enforce a rule requiring people to get the first of the two drugs in person, at a clinic, or at a hospital. Now, according to the Guttmacher Institute, medication abortion is now used in more than half of abortions in this country. That outpaces the surgical procedures for the first time since 2020. But the, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned the constitutional right to an abortion of Roe v. Wade and the implementation of abortion restrictions in many states, the question is, will this move by the FDA spark a legal backlash? We will see. There are six votes, everyone, in two days, and the House is still, still without a speaker. Kevin McCarthy scrambling to reach a deal even as we speak tonight as lawmakers prepare to go at it all over again tomorrow. So will the third day be the charm? We'll see. Well, the House voted in a nighttime session tonight to adjourn until noon Eastern tomorrow. Still don't know why 9 a.m. wasn't a possibility if you are now in going to be day three of trying to get a speaker, but that's fine. They're going to go into a second, a third day tomorrow about this very issue. And of course, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, he has been enduring a series of stinging defeats, now losing a total of six rounds of voting in his attempt to become Speaker of the House. Now, he's saying tonight that there, that while there's no deal yet, and the emphasis on yet, he says there's a lot of progress that has been made in talks with some of the holdouts to end the ongoing impasse. This possibly now paves the way for him to become the Speaker. But of course, that seems to be far from certain, knowing that there seems to be at least 20 who have not budged in many a vote at this point. Now, some of his most strident opponents are vowing again tonight, that they're going to block his bid. I want to go right now to CNN's Melanie Zanona, who's on Capitol Hill tonight. Melanie, where do these negotiations stand tonight? Is McCarthy right to be optimistic? Well, I would say he's inching a little bit closer to the speakership, but negotiations are very much still ongoing. However, we did see some signs that the talks from earlier tonight are progressing, and that is that Kevin McCarthy has made an offer to some of the critics. Uh, This is something that came after he was huddled in his office with some of the holdouts, some of his allies were there. Uh, It's unclear whether that's going to be enough to get him the votes. Sources were telling me that perhaps it could move maybe 10 votes or so, which would not be enough to get him 
to 218. But it is a sign that Kevin McCarthy is ready to give concessions and that he is prepared to do everything it takes in these final moments to try to get him the speakership. What are those concessions? I mean, we had a whole list before. They're adding to it tonight? Yeah, so there's three main things that we're hearing tonight that were offered in this concession. The first big one is that Kevin McCarthy has agreed to empower any single member to call for a vote on ousting the sitting speaker. That's something called the motion to vacate the speaker's chair. Uh, It's something that Kevin McCarthy initially said he was not going to budge on. Uh, It's something that back in the day, uh, years ago, any member used to be able to call for that vote. Speaker Nancy Pelosi changed the rules uh, and the House conference rules that were decided on in November amongst just Republicans decided to just do a simple majority of their conference. Then McCarthy came down to five members uh, in the negotiations, and now he's back down to one, which is what conservatives wanted from the beginning. So he's completely caved on that. Uh, The second thing we're hearing is that he's agreed to add more members of the Freedom Caucus to the House Rules Committee. That is a powerful committee. It dictates how bills come to the floor and whether they come to the floor. That was something, again, conservatives had been pushing for. And then the other thing that we're hearing is that McCarthy made a couple promises to bring bills to the floor and have voted on those. Uh, so again, you know, the negotiations are still ongoing. I caught up with Scott Perry, one of the members who's been part of the discussions. He declined to say how he feels about the offer, but he did say that they're going to continue. He's going back to his office right now to continue discussions. Um, so we'll see if it's enough to get him to 218. It's unlikely that that alone is going to get him there, but it can shrink the opposition. It could get at least close the gap a little bit. And for McCarthy's allies, Right now, they really do want to show some momentum and they're moving in the right direction, not the wrong direction. And so if there is another speaker's vote tomorrow when they adjourn at noon, they want to be able to show that they have made some progress, even if they're not at 218 just yet, Laura. Melanie Zanona, great reporting. Thank you so much. A lot to talk about now with CNN political analyst Alex Burns, an associate editor and columnist at Politico. Jonathan Martin, a senior political columnist at Politico. And former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh. First of all, the screen that shows the concessions, the font is getting smaller and smaller, or maybe I'm getting older by the second, because you're adding to the bottom list and thinking about this, just thinking about immediately um, on this point, um, the idea here that they're going to have a threshold of one, this is quite a sort of Damocles. I mean, if he can't get to this number, Kevin McCarthy, at this point, <clears throat> excuse me, without having to try to secure and get all the 218 votes, the fact that can one person could move for a motion to vacate, that's very significant. I actually don't think there's much difference between one and five moving to vacate. Laura, this is a battle. Look, Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker more than anything else in the whole wide world. That's all he's wanted. That's all he's wanted for a long, long time. So it's a battle between his ambition and a number of members who just can't stand and don't trust him. And I don't know how that battle's going to play out. I mean, is this the job he thinks he wants still? I mean, I'm I'm not going to put my (laughs) mind in his mind and think about it, but this does not bode well for what is ahead. Yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of work to do, Congress in, in general. I remember um, Speaker, former Speaker Pelosi actually was tweeting tonight about the work to be done. And she called out Republicans on this Speaker vote. And just read it. All who serve in the House share responsibility to bring dignity to this body. Sadly, Republicans' cavalier attitude in electing a Speaker is frivolous, disrespectful, and unworthy of this institution, we must open the house and proceed with the people's work. I mean, Jonathan, when you think about the people's work, 
there's a lot of work for whoever's going to be the speaker to try to herd cats. Yeah, I was talking to one member tonight who's a Kevin McCarthy ally who said, you know, even if we get through this and we Kevin does find the votes, he said very candidly, he said, this is not the end. This is only the beginning. And this was supposed to be the easy part was just getting Kevin to be speaker. Uh, we haven't even talked to the more uh, about the more contentious issues relating to matters like um, you know, funding the government, which they're going to have to do eventually uh, later this year, obviously raising the debt ceiling, which they're going to have to do even sooner than that. Uh, and even sort of smaller bore things beyond those two elements uh, that are going to be uh, daily uh, or at least weekly challenges, because this is not a single party. This is basically uh, two parties under the same roof. They, they have no shared uh, identity at this point. And there, there, there's no levers that Kevin McCarthy or whoever the speaker winds up being is going to have at his disposal to ensure that, that these folks fall in line when those very votes do come that I just mentioned here down the road. And falling in line, I mean, the big question that many people have is, what do you want? Right. What do they want? It's a question, frankly, that was asked of, say, a Senator Joe Manchin or a Kirsten Sinema for the better part of, what, four years about what do you want when you have this particular power. But tonight on Hannity, you had Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who was asked that very question, essentially, um, about being one of these sort of holdouts. Here's what she had to say. If by Friday you and your group of 20 don't have a name with 30 votes, is it time for you to withdraw? And if not, why do you support a double standard? Last question. Kevin McCarthy does not have 218 votes. Kevin McCarthy and you will have, not And be you speaker. have 20. I, Kevin I asked McCarthy you a very specific question. If by Listen, Friday when we, when we you get don't this have right, 30. I will not, Sean. I will not withdraw. Our You're asks not. Were, were not petty of Kevin McCarthy. They were not self-serving. We simply were asking for commitments on what the American people want to see. Alex, she says the asks were not asks were not petty, but I mean, I do remember a letter to the architect of the Capitol calling McCarthy a squatter. Uh, I'm not saying it's petty. It might be accurate. In fairness, he was asking if he was a squatter. He, he was asking if he was a squatter. Raising questions, Alex, <laughs> just asking questions. Uh, no, but, but seriously, obviously, this is intensely personal uh, for some of these members, right? You know, you mentioned Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema, and, you know, I think we all remember very well months and months and months mm-hmm. of uh, Democrats all over the country saying, how can one man stand in the way of something that yes. everybody else... Uh, and the party wants. And the answer is he can do it just fine if he's the decisive uh, vote in the Senate. And the way you eventually get him on board is you cave. You give him what he's asking for. So what we're seeing tonight is Kevin McCarthy trying that approach, right? He is caving. He is giving up so many of the levers that make the speakership a powerful body. He is giving up the tools he has to make the House a, a functional chamber. If at the end of that, he's not appreciably within striking distance of 218. And I don't mean picking up, you know, six votes, eight votes, 10 votes. I mean, really in a place where you can see the distance from a point A to point B. I think you really do have to ask yourself, what on earth could possibly bring the Lauren Boebert to the world around? Laura, to Jonathan's point, the great irony of all of this is it really doesn't matter which Republican is speaker. The next two years are going to be mega- chaos in that house, in that body. They're going to investigate Hunter Biden. They're going to haul Dr. Fauci in front of a committee, no matter who the speaker is. And the speaker can't stop that because that's where this body is right now. So even without all the concessions, you're saying that there is a level of sort of political impotence for the speaker? Yes. And, 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 And this party is animated now. 
The base of the Republican Party is radicalized. The House caucus reflects that. They want Hunter Biden. They want all these things done. No speaker would stop that. So that's why maybe Congressman Jim Jordan is like, I don't know. My focus is singular <laughs> on the investigations. It's not at all on this thing you call yeah. speakership. It's one of the great sub-themes is in a, a, a chamber full of really ambitious former class presidents, you don't see many of them stepping up to try to take this job. Mm-hmm. You know, y- yes, Byron Donalds today happily accepted uh, his, his moment, but th- th- there's no effort among uh, people who... You know, you would think that the Patrick McHenry's or the Steve Scalise's, uh, the Elise Stefanik's, people who are seen by their colleagues as potential leadership material, you know, you don't see them plotting to sort of make a move. Or if they do, uh, they're being so uh, delicate and, and, and plotting about it and sort of hoping that Kevin can fall first. Uh, and I think the reason for that, Congressman, is because it's not a job worth having, at least in the next couple of years. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and sort of to Jonathan's uh, uh, point at the start, right, that this isn't this clearly isn't the end of a fight. This is clearly the beginning of a fight, even if McCarthy does get through. And all these ambitious folks uh, who are, you know, one rung or two or three rungs down in leadership, they know as well as the rest of us, everybody talking around town, uh, that you know, the person who winds up as speaker on the first day of this Congress does not necessarily have the best odds of being the speaker on the last day of this Congress, right? And that's truer than ever with the concessions McCarthy's made tonight. So I guess in D.C. you've got the donkey, the elephant, and the scapegoat. There you go. Well, there's another potential wrinkle in all of this, everyone. The speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. And my next guest says, look, the speaker actually should come from outside of the House. There's already been two days of historic chaos on Capitol Hill, leaving Kevin McCarthy, who has his aspirations to be the speaker, in limbo. And it's frankly unclear whether he'll have the votes when the House returns tomorrow at noon. Well, my next guest says that the House should be looking not within their own ranks, but outside their ranks for the next speaker. Joining me now, former Defense Secretary William Cohen. Secretary, thank you for joining me tonight. I read your really interesting opinion piece for the New York Times, where frankly, you remind the nation, or maybe inform for the first time for some, that the Constitution doesn't actually require that a Speaker of the House has to be a sitting member of the House of Representatives. There it does provide for the election in the Constitution, but not that the member is um, a current person, a current member. Who do you think should be looked at and why look outside of the ranks of Congress? Well, I think we look outside under very extraordinary circumstances where you have a party that is uh, so split we have a minority of the majority in the Republicans now dominating uh, and dictating the terms under which they will support the speaker. So I, I think the, the founders uh, of this country, uh, they had uh, very strong um, uh, apprehensions about so-called political factions or political parties. They thought that the parties would be the end and the undoing of our democratic system. And that seems to be what's playing out in front of a full view of the American people right now, where some of the um, the non-supporters of uh, Kevin McCarthy are saying, we want to do what the people sent us here to do. Well, the American people didn't send these new members uh, to Congress uh, to simply stultify, nullify, and block legislation coming in the, in the future. They sent, I think they rejected the extremism. Uh, that we have seen take over our politics. And they said, we want more moderation. 
We want people to be able to govern. We want to see you produce things for the majority of the American people. And so I, I suggested, along with Alton Fry, who was an old friend of mine and a real academic, uh, and someone I have uh, enormous respect for, uh, he and I talked about it. I said, well, why don't we suggest uh, someone who is a Republican who could be respected or would be respected by the other Republicans, a retiring member, a former governor, John Kasich, who was a member of the Congress and a governor of Ohio, et cetera, a number of people that qualified just to bring some calm uh, so that you would have an ability to bring a consensus within the Republican Party so they could do things on behalf of the American people. So it's unusual. Um, we recommended it only for the next two years, and then you'd get to the next election and you would have a different uh, scenario. But as the, the times are piled high with, uh, uh, with difficulties, as uh, Lincoln said, uh, we have to uh, think anew and act anew. And if we, yeah. uh, we do that, we'll save the country. Secretary, I mean, just the idea of the names being floated or thinking about it, I, it, it wasn't that long ago. Um, people were incredulous at the notion people were floating the name of Donald Trump, for example. Somebody, uh, well, it can be from somebody outside of the House. And then obviously there is always the, depending on your perspective, the risk or the reward of having mm -hmm. someone from the outside. But what I find really fascinating about it and thinking about the founders and the framers as you speak about was today we think of the speaker as maybe the ultimate partisan. But you suggest that that's really not the vision, and that actually is a disservice to the functioning of Congress. So if this were somebody who were from the outside, do you think that would be able to solve that crisis of partisan divide? I think uh, it could. Uh, and it's, again, a temporary um, fix for the situation we find ourselves. This is all predictable. Uh, if you had a vote in the Republican conference, so they, they voted for McCarthy. And now they're trying to turn him, if they're going to even elect him, into a figure from the past, Charlie McCarthy, uh, a wooden figure that was being programmed uh, by the powers that are really controlling the Congress. The people who are controlling the Congress are those super PACs who are dictating the terms to the opponents of McCarthy to say, weaken that speaker so we will have more of an opportunity to control legislation or obstruct legislation. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm mixed emotions. I hate to see what's taking place in the House. I think the Republicans had an opportunity to show they were able to govern. And I think this is just the shape of things to come. We are going to see this played over and over and over again in the next two years. So you worry about the debt ceiling. What is the agenda of the Republicans now? Is it to mm. reduce Social Security, Medicare? Uh, is it to uh, oppose the debt ceiling uh, increase? What is the agenda? And they simply talk about we got to get the country on track. And the question is to, to do what? And I don't think they have any program other than we're going to do anything we can to embarrass uh, President Biden, his son, or simply obstruct uh, movement toward a more unified, a more perfect form of government. I don't think I have that uh, at heart at all. So that's distressing to someone. Yeah. I spent a quarter of a century of my life there, mm. uh, and it's uh, difficult for me to see uh, what's taking place. Oh, as they say, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, and the electorate is watching the opportunity for Republicans to now be in the majority. I mean, other names that were floated as well. Um, you talked about Governor, former Governor Kasich, but also Congressman Fred Upton, who's retiring. You yes, mentioned or departing right. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. I have to say, I mean, if we're looking at all the issues you've laid out, there are significant political hurdles ahead for whoever is the speaker. Not the most 
attractive position to sign up for, even from the outside? No, it's going to be difficult for any uh, person that they nominate and, and elect. I think the next two years, this country, we're seeing actually uh, a second wave of the insurrection. Those, most of those in that 20, the group, uh, the gang of 20, were actually uh, election deniers. They are the ones who uh, thought that space lasers and other uh, exotic activities were taking place. Israeli space lasers were altering the vote. They were worried about Asian uh, paper uh, being doctored uh, so they would only vote for Biden and not the others. I mean, it's just crazy. But being crazy now is getting into the center of the party. And those people are going to be dictating the terms. And that's why they're going to weaken McCarthy or whoever they pick will have very weak powers. And that means they will have more not to do things in a positive way, but to obstruct uh, and to frustrate the will of the American people. So let's have less extremism. We need more moderation. We need more. You had uh, Frank uh, on before. Uh, you need more decency, more civility, more willingness to work across the aisle to say, why are we here? Are we here to benefit the American people or is simply here to promote ourselves and feed our egos. And um, that's that's what's distressing about it. I think it's the shape of things to come, and I think we're in for a rough two, two years. And beyond that, hopefully the American people will see that we need to get back to the basics of governance, of integrity, of principle, uh, and of treating each other um, uh, with some um, dignity as uh, fellow human beings. Secretary Cohen, so well said. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Laura. Thank you. Everyone, the split screen, well, it really tells the story. A display of bipartisanship from President Biden. Yes, that is Senator Mitch McConnell behind him as well as others. At exactly the same time that the House was displaying its own deep dysfunction over the speaker vote. President Joe Biden speaking out today about the display of dysfunction on Capitol Hill. And no surprise, the president, a champion of bipartisanship, is not really all that impressed with what he's been seeing. It's embarrassing for the country. I mean, literally, and I, I'm not making a part of this reality is that, you know, to be able to have a Congress that can't function is just embarrassing. We're the greatest nation in the world. How can that be? How can that be? Well, here with me to try to answer that question, CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, and Jonathan Martin is back, along with CNN political analyst and historian at Princeton University, Julian Zelazar, author of the new book, Myth America. A great read, by the way, and thinking about it. And let me go right to you, Phil, on this, because how can this be? I mean, it's not really a rhetorical question. There is a history as to why this is the case. Longstanding history, and it's de developed over years. I think anybody who's just tuning in right now and thinking that this is something that just transpired over the course of the last several weeks, or even since the Trump years to some degree, is missing a, a huge amount of context into why this is actually happening right now. You can go back to 2011 and all the fights we saw uh, back then on the debt ceiling and on government shutdowns, kind of all driving to this point. It's why John Boehner is no longer Speaker of the House. It's why Paul Ryan is no longer Speaker of the House. It's why Kevin McCarthy failed in his first effort to be Speaker of the House. 
And what's different now from then is that the core group of kind of, you put them insurgents or radicals, however you want to frame them, and I don't necessarily mean it in a pejorative sense, they have grown, they have more power, and leadership has gotten weaker. And step by step by step, as leadership in the party, in the House conference has gotten weaker, uh, they have kind of moved their way into this position where their weakness is exacerbated every single day. We're watching it play out in the most humiliating fashions. Uh, And those who were once considered just a small group trying to find some semblance of power now very much control control the conference to some degree. Speaking of that, I mean, our resident historian, Professor Julian Zelazar, on that point, the context that he just provided, I mean, we have seen this before in the sense, right, the idea of what it takes. But there was a different majority you know, margin before. But there's now concessions, even more tonight. And we've been showing on the screen the concessions that have already been agreed to tentatively and the fonts getting smaller and smaller because there's more and more coming <laughs> right. at this point. I mean, yeah, that was the initial one. Now there's like the rest of them that come down, everyone. But these concessions really are important to think about. And historically, what does it tell you about the role of leadership and the trajectory where this is all going? Well, look, it's a twofold problem. One is the issue of the Republican Party and the caucus, which is just difficult to govern. It's a change that's been happening since Newt Gingrich in the 1980s. And the party keeps shifting to the right and the guardrails keep falling away in terms of what the party is willing to do. That said, you then weaken the institutional power of the speaker, and you're going to make it much more hard to govern over this ungovernable caucus. Uh, And it could have long-term precedent. We've had periods where the speakership is weakened, and it will take decades to kind of put together some of that power again. So it's a combo that can be... uh, pretty powerful in the coming years in making the House a difficult place to work. And and by the way, when you weaken that, Mm -hmm. it doesn't just impact the party that is in the majority, right? I mean, this this might have an impact on a Democrat speaker in the future, right? Yeah, there'll be a Democratic speaker if these rules go into effect. Uh, They will probably have a party that's easier to manage, uh, but they won't have the same kind of levers of power. And uh, that makes it much harder when you don't have centralized authority to keep everyone in order. But I think in the, the recent past, congressional leaders had sticks and they had carrots, and they could use either effectively, right? Uh, you had some control over fundraising uh, that was essential. That was the lifeblood for these candidates was their capacity to raise money to win election and re-election. You also had the ability to sort of dole out favors, uh, whether it was earmarks or help with something in their district or state parochial interest. Well, guess what? Nowadays, the people in Congress don't need to rely on leaders for money because they can go on social media or TV and create their own identities and personalities and raise all their money online. So they don't need the fundraising help. And secondly, bringing home the bacon for a lot of these folks on the far right is sacrilegious. They don't want earmarks back home. They want to run against Washington and run against all the pork barreling happening in Washington. So you take away those two traditional uh, elements that leaders have used as their sort of levers of power, and you deprive leaders of their ability to sort of keep folks in yeah. line, and we're left with the chaos of today. But Phil, bring us, I mean, the idea of some of those earmarks and the, the impact of that funding. I mean, right now, in stark contrast, you see the President of the United States and Senator Mitch McConnell, um, you know, not the best of friends, we'll just say, yeah, uh, politically fair. speaking or otherwise. But today, they're shaking hands, or down in Kentucky, talking about the infrastructure and the bridge development and the $40 billion that was earmarked to aid in those endeavors. And it does stand in stark contrast. If you are the president and the Senate for that reason, how is this being viewed 
what's happening on Capitol Hill and the House floor? Uh, it's unsettling. I don't think there's any question about that. And, and I think what's most interesting, President Biden has really taken pains not to insert himself into this process whatsoever. And yet he was quite candid throughout the course of the day, speaking to reporters multiple times on his own volition, calling it embarrassing, taking kind of a wider lens view of things in the sense of this is undercutting the progress I think we've made over the course of the last several months and showing that the U.S. government can actually work, that, w- that we can actually deliver and that people uh, in foreign countries that are watching the United States go through this kind of very uh, unsettled period of the last several years, perhaps they can feel more comfortable about the direction of things. The interesting kind of contrast, look, this was set up, this event today was set up as a figurative split screen, Tuesday to Wednesday. It became a very literal one because they could not get a Speaker of the House. And you talk to White House officials, they are thrilled with the image of that split screen. And yet the president, less so, because he knows what this means in the near term, whether it's funding the government, whether it's raising the debt ceiling, and longer term, what this means for the institution. One official told me today, the president is an institutionalist at his core. 36 years in the Senate, believes deeply about institutions. You can't be an institutionalist and find any of this entertaining. The chaos is bad. And I think that's his view here, despite the fact that politically it's probably advantageous to him. Have we been here before? Well, yeah, we've been here before for many years. I mean, you don't even have to go back 100 years. You can just go back to 2011 when the Tea Party came to town and threatened not to raise the debt ceiling uh, to get concessions from President Obama. And that could have, you know, huge financial fallout. And they showed procedures were malleable. Senator McConnell, uh, who, yes, today has that split screen, he's also played with very fundamental processes for partisan purposes, including leaving... uh, the Garland seat uh, vacant. Uh, and, uh, and so I think we've seen the party leadership keep opening the doors to this kind of politics. Uh, so I don't have to look back 100 years. I just look back at where the party has grown, at where the leaders have been, and that's exactly what's all coming together. And look right at now. who's in that picture today in Kentucky. Rob Portman, who's right. leaving office yep. right now, his, his last term. Mitch McConnell, probably in his last term. Mike DeWine, almost certainly in his last term as governor of Ohio. These are people on the back nine of their careers. Who's not there? Rand Paul. Rand Paul, also from Kentucky, is not at that event today. And for good reason, because he's not the kind of person who's going to show up for a big pork barrel event. Or J.D. Vance. Or Both J.D. Were invited Vance, the too, new senator from yeah. Ohio. Or Tom Maskey, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Pitty, I, I wasn't there either. There I'm just saying, <laughs> none of us were there at that point. But your point is, well, I'm thinking about what's going on. Do you want me to talk to somebody about your I, I do. I do not. But I, I am going to Kentucky there. soon. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I, I will not disparage any state. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm a fan of all 50 of them. Thank you so much. Much. Everyone, thank you for being here. And this is a good book, Julian, Myth America. Everyone, the suspect in the University of Idaho killings now returned to the state where the crime happened. So what's next, especially when police haven't revealed a motive? We'll discuss it next. Brian Koberger, the suspect arrested in the killings of four University of Idaho students, landing in Idaho earlier this evening. This after he waived extradition in a Pennsylvania court just yesterday. Now, upon landing in Idaho, he was escorted to the Lada County Jail. I want to bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller, CNN Legal Analyst Joey Jackson, and Criminologist and Behavioral Analyst Casey Jordan. Thank you all for being here this evening. There is still so many questions that we're waiting to have answered. John, let me begin with you here. What do we know about 
any motive? What do we know about how they were able to apprehend and find this suspect? Is it anything been revealed? Well, we're about to know, Laura, because with his presentation in Utah uh, before a court, they'll be able to unseal the document that gave them probable cause. But I think uh, yesterday, before the judge put the gag order on everybody involved in this case, the defense, the prosecution, the police, uh, authorities in Pennsylvania gave us uh, a very interesting story, and I think just about everybody missed it. The first assistant district attorney, Mike Mancuso, in a press conference yesterday, said that he will be working with uh, authorities in Idaho, but he wants to go back through Brian Kohlberger's life. He said, we want to look at any evidence of possible motive. You want to look at any evidence of a pattern of modus operandi or method. You want to get into the subject's character and mental state as best you can, both before the murders, during the years he was in Pennsylvania, and after the murders, which was the two weeks before he was arrested when he was back in Pennsylvania. What he's telling us is they're going to go back through Kohlberger's time in Pennsylvania. They're going to look at unsolved cases, uh, any double murder where people were stabbed in a house where they have no solution, uh, whether there were any stalking incidents when he was at DeSales University or working as a security guard at that community college. What they're saying is uh, pretty much what FBI profiler Mary uh, Ellen O'Toole told me yesterday, which is an individual who is mission-oriented, who goes into a house, murders four people, at least two of whom mm. who fought back with a fixed-blade knife, and then escapes into the darkness, is probably not in his first act of violence. Ugh. So... I think what Pennsylvania prosecutors were saying is they're going to go back through his life and see if they missed anything there, which I thought was really very interesting. Of it course, is. It is. Think about that. I want to bring in Joey in this as well, because, I mean, what John but in, is Until we describe, see that document, though, where they lay yeah. out their probable cause, of course, you know, we've got to go with the system, which is he's innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. Um, that'll also be the first time he sees what's in that document and what they say they have on him. And Joey, to that point, and again, I mean, I was a prosecutor. I know the burden is always going to be on the government to prove and try to overcome that um, that presumption of innocence. But just thinking about where we are procedurally right now, Joey, you are an extraordinary defense attorney. I'm wondering if you are getting in the mindset of what it would be like if this were your client. He is not. But if it were, what are the things you're looking at and what are you expecting to see tomorrow in a case like this? Yeah, quite a bit, Laura. I think that you want to look at the probable cause affidavit because that's where it begins. Right. Remember what that document is. That's the document which gives the indication of how we're justified, we being the police, not me, the police, to arrest him. So what's there? Is there DNA? If there's DNA, you're going to determine what is the connection of that DNA? Where was it and how did it get there? That's something the defense will certainly have to overcome in the event his DNA is there. What, if any, innocent explanation is for that? Number two, this Elantra. We've heard a lot of speaking, Laura, about the Elantra and the tracking of it. What was the basis for it being there? Is there an innocent explanation as to it being there? Number three, are there any surveillance that would have him, the defendant in this case, in or around that general area? Was he tracking them? Number four, is there any particular 
alibi that he has that can demonstrate that he did not do this. Number five, were there any witnesses that could establish him there? So there's so much that goes into this, not the least of which whether or not this is going to be a death penalty prosecution. We don't know that it is. But I think those are the things that are going to be very significant as the case unfolds and he goes to court, enters his plea of not guilty, et cetera, and the matter begins. Certainly he'll be held without bail. And you've got number six. Joey Jackson knows his stuff and what to do in this matter. Casey Jordan, let me bring you into this as well, because as um, John was speaking about, I mean, the phrase that comes to mind in just his discussion was serial offender, serial killer. Now, again, this is somebody, as everyone does deserve, the presumption of innocence. And we are not here to try to opine in a way that condemns and excuses that burden of proof that's required. But I'm wondering from your background in particular, as a criminologist, as a behavioral analyst, how are you seeing this case? Oh, I agree with John and with almost all the criminologists and investigative profilers who've weighed in since the beginning. I kind of went out on a limb at the very beginning because I never believed that this was targeted by someone who knew the victims. Uh, We always knew that the person who did this was highly organized. Maybe we underestimated the extent of his intelligence. Um, Again, I was not surprised to find out he was a criminology major, just kind of disheartened by all of that. But the bottom line is that even though technically by the numbers, this would be a mass murder, four or more victims killed in one particular location at one time, but the psychology has always been that of a serial killer. And, uh, you know, we will find out more to determine whether or not he would be a mission-oriented killer. I see far more signs of um, sexual motivation. Just because there was not sexual assault doesn't mean the motivation wasn't sexual. Uh, And again, I'll be surprised to find out if he did indeed know these people. I see a lot more power control in this particular attack. Uh, I think that it was definitely planned. He cased the joint. He may have hidden inside of the apartment, waited for them to come home. But John is correct, and the Pennsylvania authorities are correct. When you have this kind of really outlier, aberrant behavior, you're going to look for any similar crimes that might fit that modus operandi and see if he links to them. It Mm. may be the first time. This could be the advent, but it's entirely possible he has done this before. And they're going to look at all unsolved crimes that are similar to see if it's possible he could be responsible for those as well. There's so much more to learn. We'll learn more tomorrow. Thank you all. We'll be right back. Hurricane force wind gusts are hammering parts of the central California coast tonight, part of the bomb cyclone that's bringing with it heavy rain and wind gusts. CNN's Stephanie Elam has more from San Francisco, where the storm is bearing down tonight. Stephanie, what are you seeing? Laura, we're now starting to see the bulk of the storm making its way on shore where the heaviest rains and also those hurricane force winds are now starting to impact the San Francisco Bay Area. You take a look here in San Francisco behind me and you can see just how wet it is here tonight. And this is why officials are so concerned. They're saying that they are seeing these hurricane force winds uh, in some parts of the Bay Area up to 85 miles per hour, 77 down in the South Bay. That's really strong winds for places that normally don't see this. They're also worried about flooding. They're worried about mudslides as well. In fact, there's some mandatory evacuation orders in parts of the Bay Area because of this threat, because the soil is already so saturated. And a lot of that has to do with the series of storms that we've seen since New Year's Eve. The ground is so saturated as we're in the middle of this multi-year drought that it just 
is not used to having that much water and it can't accommodate anymore. So that is why it's flowing off and now we're seeing this flooding that is occurring. Officials are telling people to stay in place if they can because of these dangerous roads with that still water. You can't tell how fast it may be moving underneath. So they're asking people to be very vigilant over these next few hours leading into Thursday as it's going to be a, a very difficult ride for a lot of people out here tonight where there may be some more flooding in their areas. And as you can see, this rain not relenting right now, Laura. Stephanie, stay safe and thank you. And thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues.